and I'm your brother, Fireman Diesel Ogaya, and welcome to the Class War Battlefield Podcast. When I started this show in 2011, my goal was to inform, inform, inform. Obviously, the show has evolved, a lot of new topics, a lot of new thoughts, taking on metaphysics, some spirituality, hitting you with all types of things that you may have never heard of, and some that you have. It's always lively. But now I'm coming to you to ask you to help me prolong this podcast. For years, I have been producing this podcast for free on your behalf. I am now coming to you to ask you to support this work. whatever you can do, please do. And now, the definition. Income and wealth are now more concentrated at the top than at any time over the last 80 years. And our unjust tax system is a big reason why. The tax code is rigged for the rich, enabling a handful of wealthy individuals to exert undue influence over our economy and democracy. Conservatives fret about budget deficits. Well then, to pay for what the nation needs, ending poverty, universal health care, infrastructure, reversing climate change, investing in communities, so much more. The super wealthy have to pay their fair share. First, repeal the Trump tax cuts. It's no secret Trump's giant tax cut was a giant giveaway to the rich. 65% of its benefits go to the richest fifth, 83% to the richest 1% over a decade. In 2018, for the first time on record, the 400 richest Americans paid a lower effective tax rate than the bottom half. Repealing the Trump tax cuts benefits to the wealthy and big corporations will raise an estimated $500 billion over a decade. Second, raise the tax rate on those at the top. In the 1950s, the highest tax rate on the richest Americans was over 90%. Even after tax deductions and credits, they still paid over 40%. But since then, tax rates have dropped dramatically. Today, after Trump's tax cuts, the richest Americans pay less than 26%, including deductions and credits. And this rate applies only to dollars earned in excess of $523,601. Raising the marginal tax rate by just 1% on the richest Americans would bring in an estimated $123 billion over 10 years. Third, a wealth tax on the super wealthy. Wealth is even more unequal than income. The richest one-tenth of one percent of Americans have almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent put together. Just during the pandemic, America's billionaires added 1.3 trillion dollars to their collective wealth. Elizabeth Warren's proposed wealth tax would charge 2 percent on wealth over 50 million dollars and 3 percent on wealth over 1 billion dollars. It would only apply to about 75,000 U.S. households, fewer than one-tenth of one percent of taxpayers. Under it, for example, Jeff Bezos would owe $5.7 billion out of his $185 billion fortune. That's less than half what he made in one day last year. 
the wealth tax would raise $2.75 trillion over a decade, enough to pay for universal childcare and free public college with plenty left over. Fourth, a transactions tax on trades of stock. The richest 1% owns 50% of the stock market. A tiny one-tenth of 1% 1 tax on financial transactions, just $1 per $1,000 traded, would raise $777 billion over a decade. That's enough to provide housing vouchers to all homeless people in America more than 12 times over. Fifth, end the stepped-up cost basis loophole. The heirs of the super-rich pay zero capital gains taxes on huge increases in the value of what they inherit because of a loophole called the stepped-up basis. At the time of death, the value of assets is stepped up to their current market value. So a stock that was originally valued at, say, $1 when purchased, but that's worth $1,000 when heirs receive it, escapes $999 of capital gains taxes. This loophole enables huge and growing concentrations of wealth to be passed from generation to generation without ever being taxed. Eliminating this loophole would raise $105 billion over a decade. Six, close other loopholes for the super rich. For example, one way the managers of real estate, venture capital, private equity, and hedge funds reduce their taxes is the carried interest loophole, which allows them to treat their income as capital gains rather than ordinary wage income. That means they get taxed at the lower capital gains rate rather than the higher tax rate on incomes. Closing this loophole is estimated to raise $14 billion over a decade. Seven, increase IRS funding. Because the IRS has been so underfunded, millionaires are far less likely to be audited than they used to be. As a result, the IRS fails to collect a huge amount of taxes from the wealthy. Collecting all unpaid federal income taxes from the richest 1% would generate at least $1.75 trillion over the decade. So fully fund the IRS. Together, these seven ways of taxing the rich would generate more than $6 trillion over 10 years, enough to tackle the great needs of the nation. As inequality has exploded, our unjust tax system has allowed the richest Americans to cheat their way out of paying their fair share. It's not radical to rein in this irresponsibility. It's radical to let it continue. Hi, I've got so many of these FDR clips on taxes. Let's see if this is the one I was looking for. Here we go, this is FDR. Taxes, after all, are the dues that we pay for the privilege of membership in an organized society. And as society becomes more civilized, government, national and state and local, is called on to assume more obligations to its citizens. The privileges of membership in a civilized society have vastly increased in modern times. But I am afraid we have many who still do not recognize their advantages and want to avoid paying their dues. Yeah, we definitely do. And uh, in fact, uh, FDR continues along those lines here. 
On the one hand, there has been a vast majority of citizens who believe that the benefits of democracy should be extended and who are willing to pay their fair share to extend them. And on the other hand, there has been a small but powerful group which has fought the extension of these benefits because it did not want to pay a fair share of their cost. Which is just boiling it down to, you know, the essential issue here, which is that, that FDR wanted to use tax dollars to expand things like Medicare, well, it wasn't Medicare back then, Social Security, certainly, uh, you know, unemployment insurance, things like that, and the, the, the equivalent of the Koch brothers of that day, the, the conservatives, the, the wealthy conservatives of his day, were saying, wait a minute, this is socialism. You're helping people out, and they didn't work for the money, and they didn't inherit the money. And you have to do one or the other, right? Right. FDR continues. Taxes shall be levied according to ability to pay. That is the only American principle. And the people I mean, you know, this, this, this should be fairly straightforward stuff, fairly easy to figure out. And, well... Here he is one more time. This is Franklin Roosevelt talking about taxes. We fought the World War, and it cost us $25 billion in three years to win it. We borrowed to fight that war. A Democratic administration provided sufficient taxes to pay off the entire war debt within 10 or 15 years. Those taxes in the war days had been levied according to ability to pay. But the succeeding Republican administration did not believe in that principle, and there was a reason. They had political debt to those who sat at their elbows. To pay those political debts, they reduced the taxes of their friends in the higher bracket and left the national debt to be paid by later generations. And that was in 1936, Franklin Roosevelt made that speech. He was talking about what happened in the Roaring Twenties. And, I mean, you know, when you consider it, it's, it's, it's really quite extraordinary how, you know, there's just the whole story of taxation and, and how, you know, there's, there's, there's almost nothing new here. I mean, it's just, it's, it's like, in 1936, Franklin Roosevelt said, Republicans want to cut taxes on rich people because they owe them political debts. Now, what kind of political debts would they owe them? Well, obviously, the rich people helped them get elected, gave them power. Here's FDR one more time. I've got a few more clips here. They got out from under then. They would get out from under now if their friends could get back into power and they could get back into the driver's seat. But neither you nor I think that they are going to get back. They have gotten back right now. They're, they're essentially running the show. And that's, that's the, the thing that, you know, FDR, you know, obviously didn't anticipate. And, and uh, you know, we should know. I mean, here's, here's FDR one more time on taxes. One, one more time, FDR. But you would think, to hear some people talk, that those good people who live at the top of our economic pyramid are being taxed into rags and tatters. But what is the fact? 
The fact is that they are much further away from the poorhouse than they were in 1932. And you and I know that as a matter of personal observation. In other words, FDR has fixed the economy to a large extent. I mean, keep in mind, this is 1936. We were arguably still in the Great Depe Depression, but the, the uh, you know, a lot had, had resolved. And here's FDR one more time. This is it's just amazing to step into the Wayback Machine and discover that the exact same fight that we're having today, which is Republicans standing up for the interests of rich people and wanting to screw working people, is the exact same fight that Franklin Roosevelt was fighting in 1936. Here he is. A number of my friends who belong in these very high upper brackets have suggested to me on several occasions of late that if I am re-elected president, they will have to move to some other nation because of high taxes here. Now, I will miss them very much. There you go. We're all going to miss them very much. I think we've got, we should have music in my ear here. There we go. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute. It's coming up on 28 minutes past the hour. Thank you, Barbara Streisand's address from this year's convention of the National Association of Female Impersonators, at which she received the group's You Go Girl Award. <laughs> Followed by C-SPAN's coverage of a group intervention at the offices of Representative Tom DeLay, where fellow Republicans confronted the Texas congressman on how his unpleasant personality is hurting those around him. But first, Democratic congressional leaders respond to President Bush's $1.6 trillion tax cut proposal. Earlier this week... Senate Minority Leader Tom Daschle and House Minority Leader Dick Gephardt held a joint press conference on the steps of the Capitol to announce their opposition to President Bush's plan. Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. A few weeks ago, Senator Daschle and I stood here to announce our opposition to this so-called tax cut. In reality, a giveaway to the wealthy. As you'll recall, we pointed out that under this plan, the rich would get a Lexus, the rest of us a muffler. <laughs> we thought that really nailed the issue, but unfortunately, apart from a modest increase in muffler sales, it didn't seem to frame the debate. Well, we're here again today because we've come up with a new and we think more dramatic and effective way to illustrate our point. Imagine for a moment that this risky tax cut becomes law and each Sunday you take your tax savings and spend it on dinner for the family. What will the Bush plan put on your table? Well, if you're part of the wealthiest 1% of Americans under the president's plan, you'll have yourself a five-course dinner. That's right. How about beluga caviar? Vichyssoise. And for the main course, filet mignon with potatoes au gratin. For dessert, creme brulee. I'll wash down with a bottle of Chateau Rothschild 1972. Not too shabby. But what if you're a typical middle-class family of four? What do you get for dinner under the Bush plan? A dead squirrel. 
And, and that, in a nutshell, is the Bush tax cut. For the rich, a five-course dinner. For the rest of us, a dead, rotting squirrel. So today, we're urging all Americans who oppose this tax cut to show how they feel by sending a dead squirrel, mole, or field mouse to their representatives in Congress. Any questions? Yes. Yes, that's right. It is an actual dead squirrel. Uh, so it's fun. And it makes our point in a humorous way. Yes. Congressman Gephardt ran over it with his car, and it was still moving, so I beat it with a shovel until it stopped. Disgusting? I'll tell you what's disgusting. The way this tax cut will undo the economic progress of the past eight years. Yes? The smell? I assume that's coming from the dead squirrel. <laughs> About 10 days. Well, you know what makes us want to vomit? And the typical American family of four want to vomit? The risk this tax cut poses to Social Security and Medicare. Would, would I please put the squirrel down? Of course, if it's upsetting you. Yeah. Any more questions? Well, I can see that some of you are vomiting already. We'll have people with hoses just as soon as we can, but in the meantime, would you kindly excuse us for a moment? We'll be right back. I should never have listened to you. I said, doctor, doctor, I think it's working. I do not stay hated. Maybe if you stole it, I want to tell my idea. Fuck, sue yourself. Sue yourself. Just sue yourself. Thank you for your patience. You know, I think all of us can agree that this tax cut is a pretty squirrely idea. But perhaps there's a less distasteful way of getting that point across. Everybody likes sex, right? Well, let's talk about how this tax cut screws Americans. All Americans, rich and poor alike, of course, under the Bush plan, the rich get a much nicer screwing. For the wealthiest 1% of families, it's like going to a whorehouse and getting the works. You know, oral, straight, toe-shrimping, sex toys, the whole nine yards. Of course, that's if you're in the top 1%. But what if you're a typical middle-class family of four? What do you get at what we'll call the Bush tax cut brothel? A palm job from a she-male. That, in essence, is the Bush tax cut plan. The wealthy get off six ways to Sunday. For the rest of us, it's a cheap date with Mary Five Fingers. Any questions? Yes. No, we, we, we haven't tested this with any focus groups. Why? Yes. Even more sickening in its own way than the dead squirrel? I'll tell you what's more sickening than the dead squirrel. It, yeah. 
Hey, what's going on? Where's everyone going? We're not finished yet. There's a video. Come back, please. Next on C-SPAN, more of Saturday Night Live. Gentlemen, how you can dance and sing. That's my attitude towards the Western powers. If you want to say there's no rules, fine. Don't go crying for your mummy when that comes. America today finds herself in a unique situation. She's the only country in history in a position to become involved in a bloodless revolution. If America does not respond, Creatively to the challenge to banish racism, some future historian will have to say that a great civilization died because it lacked the soul and commitment to make justice a reality for all men. When the system doesn't work for the majority of the people, you gotta change the system. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, I'm your brother, I'm here, Diesel Gaia, and this is your Class War Battlefield Podcast, or this is a Class War Battlefield Podcast episode, whichever one you care to invite into your mind. So, I've been thinking about doing this episode for quite some time. It's on a subject that most people hate. Taxes. And I'm going to actually explain to you in this episode today why you should be for higher taxes. And I'm not just going to argue that you should be for higher taxes because of um, um, social welfare stuff. But also because, and this is, this is a position that seldom is taken by anybody arguing for higher taxation. The way that you fund a society is through contributions to a central pot typically overseen by a governing body. The governing body can be various different things, but it is that governing body who literally has the tasks of taking care of things within the society that everybody says is too important, is too vital to the safety and well-being and stability of that society to let go to chance now when I say let go to chance 
I need you to understand what I'm talking about here. Since, you know, time immemorial, people have liked to seemingly make money off of the things that they do. And some societies have kept that in check significantly enough that there's hardly any profit to be made. So people don't over-obsess themselves with collecting too much. Other societies, like the one we live in now, they emphasize collecting as much as you can, you know, no matter the cost. And that allows the greed ethic, which is not ethical at all, to run rampant. You essentially get a lot of human cancer cells that just like to collect stuff and hoard stuff for no other purpose but to hoard it. Money, obviously, is a major objective in that hoarding. Now, when I say, you know, we don't want things to go to chance, we don't want people who could be governed by this this greed to oversee these things that are vital for the survival and the stability and the well-being of society because if they oversee those things, their greed may cause them to cut corners, which for society's sake would be bad, and their greed may cause them to look out at the vastness of the people and say, well, if you really want me to do a good job, you're going to have to pay me a lot more than you pay me now. This was one of the key lessons learned from the Roman experiment. If you allow people who are diabolical and who have no conscience minds to look over and watch over things that your society needs to take care of its citizenry, it's going to be a mess. And people aren't going to get taken care of because lining the pocket of that person without a conscious mind is going to trump everything else. That was completely by accident, by the way. So, you want a commonwealth body that's not going to be motivated by money, that's not going to be motivated by greed, that's only going to be motivated by the public good, to make those things happen. Those are where your bureaucrats come in. They are your lifelong public servants who aren't replaced with every single um, administration. They are there to make sure that the machine that keeps society functioning keeps functioning itself. Some of you aren't old enough, some of you weren't even born when this happened, but I still remember, I, it, I believe it was Hurricane Andrew in early um, 1990s, it was 91 or 92, Bush won and Reagan had spent the last 12 years saying, Cut government, cut government, cut government. You don't need it. Cut government, cut government, cut government. You don't need it. And then one of the largest hurricanes slammed into Florida 
devastating Florida. And it took the federal government that nobody needed several days to get their act together, to get down there and help those people. And suddenly, all of those conservatives in Florida discovered a new religion. Oh, wait. We actually do need this stuff. Yeah, FEMA wasn't important to us. We, we forgot about Hugo, which was another hurricane that happened in the late 80s. But dang, we, we, we remember now we need this stuff. The same thing obviously was true with Hurricane Katrina. The problem with Hurricane Katrina was what Bush and Reagan had spent 12 years doing beforehand was advanced 14 more years by the time Hurricane Katrina came along. And it showed. Places like Walmart had better logistics than the government did. Walmart was down there faster than the federal government. And it wasn't because, well, the federal government is trash. No, the federal government had been under attack and had been being sawed away from for the last uh, 35, uh, not 35, it would have been 26 years. Of course, there were some problems. But here's the funny thing is, ladies and gentlemen, if you look at the amount of spending that had been carried out from the time that Reagan entered office to the mid-2000s, you know what you'd find? Spending went up. I don't care if it was Republican or Democrat. Spending went up. Yet, they were cutting taxes all the time. Just a point that needed to be made. Because that money was going somewhere. Somebody was getting that money. Oh, well, we all know who was getting that money. The wealthy was getting that money. But it's what it is. Let's get back on track. When we think of taxes, or let me back up because I skipped a little bit here. So the contributions that are utilized to, um, to, to fund those things which the society needs to remain stable, to care for itself, and to, to remain at least somewhat prosperous, are typically collected via taxation. Now, there are many forms of taxes, many forms. But in, in the modern day, the primary tax that you are paying, you have four of them. You have the taxes that are hidden, you know, they're taxes and fees and everything, you know what I'm saying? And then you have your income tax, you have your property and school tax, and then you have... um. And I'm completely blanking on the fourth one right now. Oh, your sales tax. And of course there's others, but these are these are the primary ones. And yeah, I'm not counting Social Security and all that because um, I look at that less as a tax and more of a, that's a savings account for you to use later. But those taxes are there to help fund the society and the structures within the society that will hopefully keep it stabilized and secure and all the things that conservatives say that a society should be. 
Why then are conservatives so anti-tax? I, I, I submit to you it's because most of them don't understand how taxes work. And I submit this because I didn't understand how taxes worked. I started doing some research back in 2009, 2010, 2011 on what exactly were taxes. And, and, and when we talked about taxes, what exactly were we talking about? And what shocked me was the higher income you had, the more loopholes you were presented with that you could take advantage of to not pay taxes. Only in the last four years have I really understood how those loopholes have evolved over the last 60 years and how those loopholes at one point forced corporations and companies to invest in their plants, to invest in their communities, to invest in their workers. We've gone from that to where we're at today, where companies literally get tax cuts for moving jobs off, off coast, you know, for sending jobs to China and other places. All of this information changed how I not only looked at taxes, but how I spoke to people about taxes. And this is something that I feel Democrats don't do enough of, and, and progressives definitely don't do enough of. They try to appeal to people's conscious minds. No, you got to have a real talk with people about this stuff. You have to break this down. You have to work like a teacher when it comes to some of this stuff. Because you basically, you, ha you, you have to start off when you're talking about some of these subjects, like the people who you're speaking to think they know more than they do. Because they often do think they know more than they actually do. And then you have to break it down for them. You have to take all the talking points that you know they don't heard, rip them down, and present the real stuff to replace it. Because what I found is a lot of people, when you start spitting some hardcore truth that, you know, it's not left, it's not right, it's facts, most people know most people know. Now, yes, I, I meet those individuals who are just stupid and beyond, you know, you can't reach them. But most people understand when it's not a left or right thing. And I, I was talking to, to a guy about this about three, yeah, three years ago because it was before the pandemic. And um, he, he point blank told me, he's like, oh, you sound like a liberal or a progressive. And I said, and your point? You know, well, I'm not really down for liberalism, and I'm not down for progressivism. I, so, you know, you're wasting your time. And I go, what's funny about it is, my man, I've studied conservatism. You say you're a conservative, I bet you I know more books on conservatism than you do. Well, you don't have to read to understand. Cause, uh, uh, you, you, wait, what? What? Oh, you're right, that sounds stupid. N no, that doesn't sound stupid, that is stupid. You're going to believe something that you don't actually know what it is? Hmm. Okay. And him and I had a conversation about, um, about the budget, the federal budget. And I was talking to him about the evolution of the federal budget and 
having looked through some budgets from the year 2000 to the year 2016, and his eyes got wide, and he goes, I didn't know any of that. And I go, of course you didn't, because you're listening to people who just spit in your ear. I go, I'm not for that. Which, by the way, you know, I'm, 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 I've been contemplating reading one or more of the um, budget statements. I'm, I'm not talking about the whole thing, but there's an executive summary and some other documents that I may be doing um, from the year 2000 and like 2004 or something like that. Maybe, maybe, I'm not sure yet. Anyway, 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 anyway. It was the conversation with him, because we talked a little bit about taxes, that kind of planted the seed that told me I needed to do an episode on taxation. I just hadn't gotten around to doing it until now. One of the first things I have to point out when it comes to talking about taxation is the word tax is one of the most horribly defined words in the English language. It is literally defined in a way at least the ones that I've seen, um, which make it sound harsher than it is. In fact, one of the definitions, which I completely forgot about this, was a heavy burden. A heavy burden. You know, like, oh, well, those bricks are taxing me because they're on me. So a heavy burden. And it's, taxation doesn't have to be a heavy burden. It's only a heavy burden if you don't have enough money to pay it. Which, brings me to, I think, the real definition of taxation. It is a contribution that is made, typically from your earnings, to the, to, to the institutions in society that one has granted governance over that society, which is probably not as nice as I wanted to say, but it's what it is. It's a beginning. It really is a contribution to a society, specifically those institutions within that society that are often constituted in governance statutes that are dedicated to maintaining peace and security and stability within the society. And you know, probably should also add, promote the general welfare, commonwealth, yada, yada, yada. And humanitarian principles. Always add humanitarian principles. Anyway, that's what taxation is supposed to be about. Now, in the modern era, in this modern capitalist era, the reason you should be for more taxation is because two things. One, especially when you're talking about wealthy people, do you not realize, family, that you have already, 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 already been taxed beyond anything you could ever believe? But see, you don't call it a tax. What am I talking about? Most of you have never read Marx. So you do not know, because, you know, Marx is so bad. Ooh, you read Marx, he's going to kill you. Ah. Like my father said, white people used to tell us aspects of the Bible were wrong because it told us we should be liberated when we were being hunted down and murdered by the same people who gave us the Bibles. 
So, you know, my, my father loved to read, and he'd always tell me, don't, don't let people tell you what to read and what not to read, because half of the time, they don't know what they're talking about. And what I've learned about people who tell me, well, you shouldn't read Marx because he's such a bad person. They never picked up a dang book on Marx for their, you know, if they liked the pen. They never read anything about Marx. I love catching people like that. Marxism is bad. Okay, well, list me five books you read on Marx. Well, I, I don't, I, I, I never, I, but, but, uh, yeah, mm -hmm, yes, yes. How about listing me just a couple of titles that Marx wrote himself? Das Kapital. Ah, yes, you got one. How about another one? Well, mm-hmm. Now list me five Marxists, and Jesse Jackson don't count because he ain't a Marxist. Anyway, have too much fun with that. Um, <laughs> so, um, surplus value. Surplus value is a phrase that you want to teach yourself. Why? Because it is a tax, ladies and gentlemen. It is a tax. It's not called a tax, but it is a tax. Years ago, I was down at the local um, farmer's market in my small town. Every Saturday they used to do this. I, I can't say it was small because it was actually a pretty decent sized farmer's market. I would go down there and pick up some amazing vegetables. Oh, amazing vegetables. And I was down there talking with some of the Mennonites and some of the Amish folk one day. And um, one, of, one, of the, one of the guys, I got to know him, you know, over the course of several months. And, and he asked me what I did for work. I was working at a um, production place at the time. And um, I asked him, I go, you know, why don't you guys... Why don't I ever see you guys engaged, like, in that type of work? And he goes, because, young man, um, we, don't, we don't consider that work. And I go, huh? He's like, yeah, we don't consider that work. He says, work is supposed to feed your soul and nourish you. You're supposed to feel like um, you are contributing something to it. And that you do not feel like you're contributing anything to it. That doesn't feed your soul. That doesn't nourish you. Employment is different than work, young man. And I started thinking about that. I'm like, oh, oh. And he said, and plus, um, we also like to keep our money. <laughs> I smiled and I laughed. And, you know, I didn't really know, I didn't realize what he was telling me until recently. We like to keep our money. When you go into these places, ladies and gentlemen, and you work, you produce a whole heck of a lot more per hour than you are getting paid. Typically, typically, you're, you're, you're putting in about 15 to 20, maybe even more. Well, some companies a little bit less, but usually 15 to 20 times what you're actually getting paid per hour you're producing. Yeah. Did you hear what I said there? Per hour, I mean, even at the low end, if you're talking five or six times what you're getting paid, and you're getting paid, Lord, hoping, man, I'm, I'm, I'm praying that everyone's getting paid this. If you're getting paid $15 an hour, 
and you're producing five times that, that means you were producing $75 an hour. Every hour that you're working. And yet, you're only bringing home $15. Now, some, you know, the, the argument that wealthy people make is, well, but we have this expense, this expense, this expense. You save it. When you're, when you're paying your CEOs 12 and 13 and 14 and 18 and 20 and 30 and $50 million a year, you, you can't talk about excess expenditures. You can't do it. Now, again, that's the low end. Unless the company's in financial trouble. But five times what you're what you are getting paid you're producing. Then there's I've worked at places where we were making twenty twenty times, thirty times, a hundred times what we were getting paid. I worked one job. We were getting paid nine dollars an hour and I remember for like two weeks straight we were on this line that was producing I'm not joking, I might have mentioned this before, it was producing quarter of a million dollars worth of product every single night we were working on it. 10 hours, we produced quarter of a million. We were producing $24,000 every hour that we were working. By the way, we had 50 minutes off, <laughs> and we still were doing quarter of a million dollars. And we were getting paid 9 bucks an hour. Tell me again why we shouldn't have, um, why we don't need a federal minimum wage that puts it at like $20, $22. Stop this kind of greed. Anyway, the reason you don't see that money is because the corporation takes it. Now, we don't look at that as a tax, but that's a tax. If the government was doing that to you and the government ain't doing that to you, that's why I laugh at these conservatives who, the government's greedy, the government's greedy, the government's greedy. Fool, you go into a job every single day, and that corporation taxes you at a severely higher rate than the government's ever thought about taxing you, and yet the government's greedy. What are you smoking? By the way, this argument wasn't even developed by me. This was arguments that were being made leading up to the Great Depression. There was, there was deep intellectual wrestling with the idea of what are we going to do with corporations? Because they are taking all this money and building these great fortunes and wealth, but they're doing it by depriving the workers who are actually doing the work of what they are producing. Part of why FDR implemented the New Deal was because he understood if that dynamic didn't slow down, if corporations weren't forced to pay their employees better, to treat their employees better, to, to treat their communities better, the people were going to say, the hell with capitalism, we're done with it, let's go. He knew it. Because he understood that anything that the government could tax would be nothing compared to what the corporations were taking from these people. And by the way, that's another reason why the government started taxing corporations 
heavily. The first income taxes weren't aimed at you and me. It was aimed at corporations. Corporations had far too much power. See, that's, that is a part of history that is not talked about enough. Corporations had far too much power in the early 1900s, the late 1800s. And finally, part of the progressive movement that took place that ultimately led to the New Deal was surrounding control of the society. That is something that is not talked enough about. The progressives and the radicals wanted government to play a heavier role in regulating society because the regulations that corporations had been imposing on society had left society in such a poor state that the people were crumbling under the weight of the greed that the corporations were, were moved by. We often, we often don't think, we often don't think about why crime was running rampant in the early 1900s through the mid-1900s. It was because Corporations had a severe interest in allowing criminal elements to run rampant in large, vast areas of the country. If people had to choose which boogeyman they wanted to deal with, they would much prefer to deal with the corporations than the gangsters. There was, a, there was a, a bond in relationship there that was frightening. And so a lot of what progressives and, and liberals and radicals wanted the government to do was to take the power out of the hands of the corporations and the people who ran them so that the society could stabilize and become safer. And become more prosperous. Because there was a lot of money. But the only people who seemed to benefit from it was the people at the top and a very small sliver of middle class people. In other words, the United States resembled the European of old. Where you had all of these rich people who had plush estates, and the rest of the people lived in, in just... Actually, it was worse than even Europe of old because even the serfs had the idea of commonwealth. And, and the wealthy protected the idea of commonwealth. During the industrial era in the United States, there was no commonwealth. There was no commonwealth. It was hell for the serfs and the peasants who, who, who came here from Europe. That was one of the reasons why there was the move, the progressive move, to take the country away from corporations. The taxation from the corporation was horrible. When you, you know, when 
some of you are familiar with the idea of company towns. If you're not familiar with a company town, Google it. I ain't going to tell you about it. Google it. Read up on it. But here's one thing that you never interpreted. Listening to the, to the idea of the um, company towns. When a company owned a town or a region, what they forced you to pay them for, that was a tax. They were the governing body in that area. They were executing a tax against you. But have you ever thought about that? They were executing a tax against you and you had to pay it in order to survive. Now, that is, I understand why people look at taxation the way they do when you look at it through the historical lens of the abuse of the system. But there were taxes at a local level, a state level, a corporate level, way before there was an income tax. It has only been in the last hundred years, and a little bit over now, that there has been a drive for a national income tax and, and, and what that hopes to accomplish. In fact, the reason most of our present-day conversations surround taxation is because of that fight over a hundred years ago to the, new, to the um, Great Depression and New Deal over wrestling the society away from corporate control. Now, when we look at this idea of corporations taxing you when you go in there and you work and you produce, let's say, $150 per hour worth of material, and they give you $15. They're going to take some of that. And their argument is, because I went to school for business, and I've heard this argument. Their argument is this. Oh, yeah, but we need it for other things like, you know, to pay electric bills, to, you know, pay for, you know, you, you may have um, health care insurance. You know, I learned something very interesting about a lot of these health care plans. Um, these companies, they get tax write-offs for having health care plans. If they have a specific type, they can get a tax write-off. They won't be able to write it all off, but they can write off a lot of it. Bet you ain't know that. Bet you ain't know that. There's other aspects that they can't write off, which is one of the reasons why there's a race to the bottom with a lot of um, um, insurance policies now because Trump and the GOP changed some stuff because they didn't like Obamacare or so I was told I don't know how true that is so don't quote me on that but that's what I was told so after they take that money from you and they filter it up they pay for the few things that they're going to pay and then they you know dish out as much money as they're going to dish out um, to their executive team, let me ask you something. Have you ever thought about this? Their profits are equivalent in many instances 
to and and not all because if they're selling stuff obviously some of their profit is going to be from that blah 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 but let's just talk on the let's talk on not only the manufacturing area but the consumer area a lot of their te- a lot of their profits are based on your labor and your labor power meaning what when they post those huge profits a lot of that is a taxation against you. It's the it's the surplus value that you have produced, which they then get to count on their ledger. Now, they could be nice, and they could give a bunch of it right back to you because you produced it anyway. But that ain't what they're going to do. They're going to count it for themselves and then toss it out to their, quote, stockholders, which... Most of the time, they don't really care about the small stockholders. They care about the majority stockholders, people already with usually a ton of money. But, 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 and this is why you really should be for higher taxation. Most of the time, that money ain't going to their, quote, stockholders. It's going to a few people who are really lining their pockets deeply with it. Your labor, your work, your worth, your sweat, your tears, your missed time with your family, they don't have to worry about that because they get time off and all that. You're working through being sick and all the like. You know, you only get, you know, if you're lucky, 10, 20 days off a year. They get 50, 60, 100. You put everything into them, into making that money for them. And then they take it and they hoard it away. They punish your society, they punish your community, the towns that you live in, because they don't want to pay their taxes. They've already taxed you, but they don't want to pay taxes to the surrounding area that you would have paid more taxes to. If you had been given that money, think about this. Think about this. You're making, you're producing $150 worth of whatever every hour. And instead of giving you 15 bucks, let's say they give you 30. After about a year, maybe two, of making 30 bucks, you're going to notice something interesting. Your bank account's going to be overflowing. You know why? Because contrary to what most people say, oh, well, the the poor don't manage their money good. No, the poor just don't have a lot of money. After about a year, maybe two years, you get everything caught up. All them old bills that you've been setting aside, you get everything caught up. You've bought everything for your uh, your house, your apartment, whatever you have, your trailer that you need. You pay your taxes. Because once you got an abundance of money, you really don't give a darn about paying them taxes. Them taxes is whatever. Suddenly, two years down the road, you're looking at your bank account and holy crap, I got like $4,000. No, $6,000. 8000 10,000. What? Okay, let's take a let's take a trip. 
I done paid my taxes. I'm happy. I'm making good money. Who cares? You would spend that money in local places, guarantee it. And you would be happy to spend it in local places because you have it. Whereas they hoard it. Yeah, you put some money in the bank. Absolutely. And you should. And you should. Well, since, since, you know, Republicans don't want to force wealthy people to put more money into Social Security for the society that they are utilizing and abusing, these people should have to put more into Social Security because since they aren't paying people what they're worth, Either you pay people what they're worth so they can save, or you contribute more because you are taking these people's money, you're not giving them what you're supposed to, and then you're saying it's their fault that they don't have enough money when they get old. After working in your system, you're saying it's their fault that they don't have enough money to retire comfortably. Psychopathic, y'all. Psychopathic. This is another reason why you should be for taxation. They didn't tax you. Oh, well, it's different. Really? Because I'm going to tell you what, Mr. Conservative, because I know that's who said it. No, oh, but it's different. If the government was taking that lump sum out of you, you would be calling for revolution. But because it's a corporation, you say to have a revolution against that, to stop them from doing that is counterproductive and dangerous and da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. The contradictions in your argument is so brightly lit that even your mind can't hold that. They've already taxed you. But they won't pay the money that they've stolen from you to the society and the community that you yourself would fund if you were given the money. Because I guarantee you, I don't care what conservative you are unless, you know, you're as greedy as the people who you support are. And the book um, uh, Authoritarian suggests that there's a lot of you who are. But for the majority, and I'm not talking like 51 and 52 percent, I'm talking like 70 something percent. Maybe even 80. You give the majority of people 80, 90, $100,000 in a year for doing the type of work that they've been doing for peanuts. One, oh, and you give them 50, 60 days off in a year because that's where we're at. Capitalism should not be arguing against that. That should be a standard. Leisure, absolutely. You should, 60 to 90 days, we should be on to that already. But they're afraid of that. If people have that kind of time, they might actually get smarter, and they might want things changed. So, you know, hey, psychopaths. But, if you were making that kind of money, you would pay 10, 12, 30 well, maybe not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thirty. You'd pay thirty thousand dollars a year in taxes. I was gonna say no, but yeah, you're making a hundred thousand. You'd pay your thirty thousand to keep your society good, to make sure your children had really good schools, all of it. 
you would pay it. Because, contrary to popular beliefs, most people aren't actually for, I'm, I'm sorry, against taxation. They're against obsessive taxation. We need to have a different conversation surrounding taxes. And this is the beginning. I, I know it's, it's different than what you're used to dealing with and, and how you're used to looking at it. But it, it is what it is. Tell me that I'm wrong. Tell me that these points are incorrect. Which, by the way, by the way, for those of you who want to get at me because, oh my God, you used a Marxist term. You, you used a Marxist term. The same people who are going to get at me about using a Marxist term. None of you get at me for using conservative terms. None of you got at me for saying that I, you know, back in, what was it, 2019, I think it was, I produced the episode where I looked over the 10 principles of conservatism, and I identified several that were true, that were applicable, that should be standardized. And I talked about that. None of you got at me as conservatives and said, yeah, but you shouldn't be saying that because what? Because I'm not sufficiently conservative enough for you? See, here's the difference between me and you when it comes to conservatism, my man. Because I know I've talked to people like that. Whereas you say you look at everything. You're a liar. No, 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 no. You're a liar. Go to, go, go to the mirror, look in the mirror, and say, I am a liar, because that's what you are. You are a liar. You don't look at everything, and you don't take from everything, because your mind can't handle it. You've been listening to these people who've been spitting in your ear for the last 20 years, and they've been lying to you, and you believe it. So your mind's closed off. The difference between you and I is I actually do take from everything. My mind's not closed off. I am learning constantly. If, if I listen to Ben Shapiro and he makes a good point, he's going to make a good point. I haven't heard one yet. And frankly, I don't know if I can really acknowledge that because Ben, I mean, it's... Ben Shapiro's a sad guy. I just, man. But... Yeah, I don't, I don't think I could get to the point where I'm like, yeah, he made a good point. But, but, I'm learning constantly. And, and if there is something in conservatism that is powerful and positive and should be um, utilized, I'm going to talk about that. The same with libertarianism. I'm less likely to do it with them because the fact of the matter is they're just really trying to implement what was in the United States pre-New Deal, pre-progressive um, era, that's what they want to reproduce, and I ain't for none of that. Because I know what happens to my people when that happens, when that occurs. And I, I ain't down for that. But I still look, I still read, I still consider, even if I know I'm not going to typically um, be down with it. For instance, for instance, um, I haven't released it yet, so I don't know if this is going to come out before or after I release this. I have a two-part series. I was going to do a third part, but I'm not going to do the third part. 
a two-part series where I read an article and I dissect the article. And it is a article written by, by a neoconservative. In that article, I find some good points. And I talk about it. I also find some stuff that is uh, need, needs a little bit of clearing up. But that is who I am. That's what I do. And for those of you who, again, you want to come at me because of the whole uh, Marxist thing. How are you going to tell me you, you don't like something if you've never read it? I may not even agree with everything that marks, you know, from the stuff that I've read of him. Um, but I'm still going to give him an opportunity. And what I would suggest for you who say that you're anti-Marxist, I'm, I, I would suggest one book. And I know most of you ain't going to read it, but there's a couple of you that will. And I would suggest one book because I got this book. I didn't know it was a Marxist book when I first got it, when I first purchased it. Um, and it kind of, it blew my mind because it, it, there are aspects in history, especially when you're talking capitalism, that you just don't hear about. And one of the greatest things about reading a lot of Marxist historians is they are thorough when it comes to talking about the modern development, specifically this book concentrated on the 1700s, the 1800s, and I think the early 1900s the modern development of capitalism. The book is Michael Perlman's P-E-R-E-L-M-A-N, his book called The Invention of Capitalism. It, it is, it's, it's, it's something else. Check it out. Um, I suppose the last thing that I'll say about taxation before I wrap up is at the end of the day, the people at the bottom of the society built this economy. People often say, well, if you didn't have the entrepreneurs, dot, 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 dot. My response to them is, how do you know? Well, because nobody did it. No. The people didn't have the money. Now, I could tell you from being amongst poorer folk all my life. Poor people are some of the smartest, most resourceful people that you'd ever meet. And they have a lot of great ideas and a lot of good big ones, too, that could make money. The difference between them and Bill Gates is Bill Gates had access to a road that none of them have access to, including aid from the government to help build his business. The world will look a lot different once we get over this idea that it's one or two people who make society run because it's never been the case. It'll never be the case. We all pay taxes already, and we pay a lot, especially the farther down you are. 
recognizing that, especially recognizing that it's not always the government who taxes you, moves how you think about taxation and why there should be more. I'm to the point in my life where I'm like, <clears throat> as big as this country is, as big as this economy is, um, the United States probably should have a $10 trillion, most of it not going to the military budget. Universal pre-K, a robust health care system, which I'm going to have to talk one day about um, what I have realized about that. Um, but a lot of money to put into infrastructure. A lot that could be done with $10 trillion. I apologize for my voice. It, uh, it's going a little bit today. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can always reach out to me. I love hearing from y'all. Um, I am your brother, Byron Diesel Guy. If you could spare some change, support the work that I'm doing, um, CWB Podcast, CWB Podcast, hit me up on Cash App, hit me up on PayPal, 2, 5, 10, 20, 50, whatever you can do, y'all. Whatever you can do. I know um, some of you who've been listening for quite some time, you're probably a little bit hesitant because, you know, I've started out years where you know, I'm, I'm putting some, you know, I'm putting some work in. Um, I can tell you this already. I have probably 15 or 20 of these pre-recorded. All I got to do is just put them together and ship them out to you. Um, my, my goal, I'm really trying to make this my first 52, um, part, you know, year. I'm really trying to make it my first 52 part year because, um, I've never done that before and yeah, I'm kind of committed to that. So again, reach out, you know, if you got questions, comments, concerns, anything, reach out to me. Love hearing from you. I'm your brother, Vimeer Dees. Oh God. Yeah. Big up to Baba Oka, oh, Baba Oka, cheapers, Baba Oba Tashaka. It's one of the elders in the community, He's doing great work. Um, to to the brothers and sisters over at Black Power Media, to professional left podcasts, y'all doing y'all thing. Um, to the Majority Report. I'm trying to limit myself to only using their clips about two times a month because uh, they're doing some good work over there. Um, to the cats over at Young Turks. Uh, yeah, to the cats over at Young Turks. I was, I, was, I was about to clown a little bit on the Young Turks. To um, Best of the Left Podcast, who really, man, Best of the Left Podcast, y'all. Oh, my God. That was my go-to. When, when I first really started podcasting back in 2008, maybe 2007, um, they were my go-to. And, man, oh, where, where I would be. Jay, 
like he introduced me to so many people, so many people um, that I, I I still listen to some of them today. Nicole Sandler was not introduced to me via there, but her show is awesome, especially for y'all liberal-minded people. Nicole Sandler is 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 doing her thing still. The Brad Blog, oh man, oh man, oh man. Only because I like them twice, because they're so damn nice. I got to say them again. Black Power Media. I mix what I like. Luke Man Nation. Burn it down with Kim Brown, man. Um, Resistance Radio. Oh, man. Who else we got? Ear Doctor. Oh, man. Brother Chunga. <laughs> Let me see. There's, there's all kinds of people. I know I'm forgetting some. Oh, yeah. Hardcore History. Hardcore history, hardcore history, hardcore history. Um, how could I forget, get brother uh, Dan Carlin on that one? Um, yeah, I know there's a couple more that I'm missing. Roland Martin, Roland Martin, um, in class, in class. Love all y'all, my Nubian fellas, my Nubian women's. Yeah, sun rising every day. Mm. So, again, reach out. Love hearing from y'all. I'm your brother Brian Meridiso Gaia. Till the next one, y'all. Peace. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the guns to the wars that are fought in places where their business interest runs. On the radio talk shows and the TV, you hear one thing again and again. How the USA stands for freedom And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments killing their own Or the people who finally can't take anymore And they pick up a gun